So it was about this time that King Herod arrested some that who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers east. Now, you know, when I've always read this, I thought there were four guards. How many guards were there? Sixteen guards, okay? It wasn't just one or two or four. Herod intended to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. This week in your lesson, you were asked to look up some facts about Herod. So let me just give you a little. When, when I, I, I oversee our leaders' meetings and I knew who just to go to, who would have done history on Herod, and, and she shared some things that, that I didn't even know. But this is Herod Agrippa. Of this chapter, he was a descendant of the Maccabees. And when I say that word Maccabees, there's something that in my old age conjures up a memory. But I don't know what I don't know what that was. Um, but that name just jars a bell in my head. Um, and he was educated in Rome. He had a very good relationship with the Jews from time to time. He attempted to keep the law and the Jewish observances to be in good favor with the Jews. He was popular with the Jews from time to time, and he tried to keep on their good side. And people like this are called people pleasers, and this is a very dangerous thing to be. He knew that the Jews would be pleased with him if he was persecuting the believers. His thought was if he could wipe out the leadership, the church would fall. Now, this still happens today. We have someone named Satan who still believes that if he can destroy pastors and leadership, the church will fall. And let me just say this about that. This is why it is so important that we as the body of Christ are not depending on our leaders to spoon feed us. I have five things that I wrote down that we need to be as Christians. Be in God's word daily. Number two, know why you believe what you believe. I've taught this to my children. My children are teaching this to their children. Know why you believe what you believe. Don't just believe that you're going to heaven because mommy and daddy told you. Know why you believe that you're going to heaven. Number three, be able to defend your faith. That's so important. It kind of goes along with number two, but there's a little difference in that. Number four, live in constant prayer. Live in constant prayer. Let prayer, and and if you don't know this, prayer is just communication with God. It's just communication with God. I'm sure during the day you talk to yourself. I do. I scare people when I do that. I don't care. I talk to myself. But as I talk to myself, I want to be that same comfort level in talking to God. 
You know, when I'm driving, when I was driving here this morning, I was having a conversation with God about this morning and sharing with you ladies. When I'm in the shower, I have some of my best prayer times, and I'm just talking to God. As I go to sleep at night, I'm talking to God. Yesterday, I'm going to share something that happened with you. I was in communication with God all day long yesterday. And I love that we can have just that intimate conversation. Me and my Jesus, me and my God, my Savior, my Deliverer, my Fortress, my big and mighty God. I can have conversation with him every day. And number five, understand that it is better to please God than man. We must obey God rather than man. You know, in the 30-some years that Vic and I have been in full-time ministry, I have seen pastors and leadership fall by the wayside. I've seen some horrific things. I've seen some very sad things. But the evidence of a strong church is when the body of Christ can go on. And that's what Herod was thinking here. If he could destroy the leadership, the body would fall apart. But that can't happen if the body is strong and we need to be strong. So Herod killed James, and now he's going to lock up Peter, and he has plans to kill him. But he couldn't kill him right away because of the Jewish festival. And the law said that you couldn't kill anybody during this time, so he had to put him in prison. And he was waiting to enact his plan. And he had 16 guards guarding Peter. But let me just remind you that 16 guards are no match for our God at all. So verse 5 says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Peter's arrest sent the church to its knees, and I love that. What sends you to your knees? It may have come as a wake-up call for the church. At times we see God doing things and we can become complacent. Oh, God's got that. Oh, God's got Cornerstone. Oh, things at Cornerstone are going good. I don't need to pray for them. You do. You do. Because the enemy is always knocking at the door, ready to devour and to destroy and to discourage. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our pastor. I I have thought a lot about them this week, and I... Um, know that they're enjoying time together and resting, and, and um, I've been praying for them this week, and I encourage you to pray for your pastor and the other pastors and the leaders of this church that God would keep them strong, that God would keep them set apart, that nothing would keep them from the path that God set before them. But God forbid that anything should happen to all of us. You know, a lot of times I think these pastors travel together to conferences and they travel, they used to travel in one van. And I just think, oh, God forbid if something would happen to that whole van of all of our pastors. But the reality is that if our body is strong and you are strong Christians, our, our church would go on. The body of Christ would go on. And that's so, so important. But we do need to pray for our leaders. Do you realize that prayer meetings are the least attended meeting in the church? And it's so sad. You have a potluck? Boy, we're there. We baked our brownies and we made our spaghetti casserole and and somebody made deviled eggs and Susan's right there in line. And you call a prayer meeting and you're lucky if five people show up. 
It's so sad. It's our most valuable tool. It's our least tool used. And it's so sad. Now, the word that the Bible says here that they were earnestly or fervently praying. The Greek word is, I'll spell it for you because I don't speak Greek. E-K-T-E-N-S-E. I would say that ectense, but I don't know that that's right. But it means earnestly or fervently praying. James had been killed, and as soon as the Feast of Unleavened Bread was over, Peter would probably be beheaded also. So what did they do? Did they do like sometimes I do? Did they run around and throw their arms in the air and say, the sky is falling, the sky is falling? Did they jump on their cell phone and call their best friend and say, you're not going to believe what's happened to me? And did they, you know, get on Facebook, which is not a bad thing. I encouraged my daughter yesterday to put a, a prayer need on Facebook. Not a bad thing. So that more people could be praying. But what do we do? Do we hit our knees? Do we go to prayer? This same word that's um, in the Greek here for earnestly prayed is only used in one other place in the New Testament. It's 1 Peter 1.22, where Peter exhorts us to love one another fervently with a pure heart. So the question for you and I today is, do I pray this way? This is a good time for you to evaluate your prayer life. As we go through trials in our life, and hopefully as we learn and the difficulties come, and let me just tell you, they will come, and being as old as I am, they keep coming, we need to know to hit our knees first. It's the only way we will live in peace in this life. I have an older daughter, who some of you know, who is a Christian, but when she has a problem the first thing she does is cry. And the second thing she does is get flustered. And the third thing she does is call me. And I'll say to her, what's wrong? And she'll tell me, and I'll say, okay, let's pray. And so then I think I pray this incredible prayer for her, and I think God's working, and I say amen, and she repeats the whole thing all over again to me. And I think, did you just hear what we asked God to do? And it's frustrating because we tend to be like that from time to time. So yesterday morning, it was about 10.30, and I was um, buried in my house yesterday. Got up to snow that we weren't supposed to get. Um, And I had let my puppies out. I'm in my sweats with my coffee, blanket over me, puppies in my lap. That's my life this winter. And... My daughter calls me, this one, Elisa, at 10.30, and she says, Mom, do you have a minute? Well, when Elisa says, Mom, do you have a minute? I know this is going to be a deep conversation or something's wrong. I said, yep. She said, Megan just called me. Now, Megan is a good friend of Roberts and Elisa, Megan and David. They have three kids. They live in Richmond. Christian, he was at um, the conference, the last men's conference. She's been here to church God's done great things in their lives. The Lord's used used Elisa and Robert in their lives greatly. Um, We've just seen them grow and seen them, God, do some really neat things in their lives and their marriage. And she called me and she said, um, Richmond had, they live in Richmond now, Richmond had six inches of snow and um, Megan's parents were there. So they got up this morning. They have three kids that are five, nine, and ten. 
and a boy and two girls, the little girls five, and they were out sledding um, at their house. And David, who's the dad, um, he was sledding, it was his turn, and he went on the sled and he went down the hill and he hit ice and he went into the street and he went head on into a car. And Elisa called me and she, and it took my breath away. I mean, it literally took my breath away. And Elisa said, Mom, Megan's in the car following the ambulance and he's not responding. And my first question was, did they intubate him? Is he breathing on his own? Elisa said, I think he's breathing. I don't think they intubated him, which to me was a really good sign. But he's not moving anything, Mom. He's not responding, nothing. And I said, okay, let's go to prayer. And we started to pray. And the minute I got off from her, I called Vic. And he was, and, and you know, Vic has just done two funerals for two friends that were younger than him. And he, he just, he couldn't believe what I was telling him. And he just said, okay, I got to get this on the prayer line right now. For any of you that don't know, we have a care line here at church. If you have a prayer need, um, anything like that, you call the church, ask for the care line. You put your request on there. There are like, now there's like six or seven couples and staff that faithfully pray for you. That's part of the ministry here at, at Cornerstone. So we got this on the care line. And so I said to Elisa, please let me know as soon as you hear anything. So I'm texting Elisa. Elisa's texting Megan. Megan's cell phone dies. Lesson two, charge your cell phone every night. You never know when you're going to need that cell phone. She hadn't been able to see David. They wouldn't even let her go back with him. That's how bad this was. And I thought, in my great faith, I thought, he's gone. He's gone. I'm going to have to pack. We're going to have to go to Richmond. You know, I'm going to have to be with my daughter so my daughter can support her friend. And I just thought, how are we going to face this? And when I started to feel like that, I would go back to prayer. So here's my faith to pray, and then my wavering faith in my flesh. And here's my faith in my wavering flesh. And this went on for hours. And finally, um, they let her back to see him, and she got his cell phone and was able to call her mom. And then Elisa called her mom, and he was breathing. And they were taking him in for CAT scans and x-rays and everything um, for brain damage and all of this. Well, God did a miracle because he didn't have any brain damage. And he didn't have one broken bone. He has, yeah, amen to that. Praise God. He has lots of torn muscles and ligaments and tissue. He's black and blue. He's swollen. He's in excruciating pain, but he's alive. And when I told Vic he was alive, he said, Susan, that's nothing short of a miracle. And it is a miracle. It is a miracle. But, you know, here's the, here's the real truth. And I had to think about this yesterday. If God would have taken him home yesterday, that would have been God's sovereign will. And we would have had to have gotten through that. Because God is sovereign. But in God's sovereignty, he chose to leave him here. He had a five-year-old little girl that witnessed this. And two little boys that saw him go into that car. And they were praying too. So many people were talking to God all day long yesterday, earnestly talking to God. And you know what? It doesn't have to be for something that critical. My dad used to laugh at me because when I go to the mall, I pray for a parking place. Unfortunately, now we go to the mall, we pray to be safe. There are things that I pray for today that I didn't pray for when my kids were little. I never had to pray to be safe at a mall. You know, I didn't have to pray to be safe in places that now we pray to be safe in. 
But I guess we should, right? I guess we should. So incredible things happen when we hit our knees. Let's look at verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Just that sentence alone blows me away. And the sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter. I like that word, struck. He didn't nudge. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. You know what that says to me? Peter was in a deep sleep. Sometimes Vic's alarm will go off and he doesn't hear it because he wears earplugs at night. I've never quite understood this. He wears earplugs at night. So I have to push him to wake him up to turn off the alarm because it's on his side. I don't have to get up. He has to get up. So I'm constantly nudging him, but I've never struck him. At least I don't think I have. But he, but Peter must have really been in a deep sleep because it says the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrist. And the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing or what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Remember, Peter had seen visions, so he probably thought, well, this is just another vision. But he soon realized it. Wow, I'm awake. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been in a dream? I've been in dreams, and I think, I know this is a dream, and I want to wake up. Have you done that, or am I just weird? Yeah, you know, so he may have thought he was having a vision, but he soon realized he wasn't. They passed the first and the second guard, and they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It was opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of the street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me, and Herod's clutches from everything that the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Praise the Lord for that. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and the servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the front door. You're out of your mind, they told her. Such great faith. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him, and they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to to be quiet, and he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Psalm 91.11 says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. We also read in Hebrews 1.14 that angels are ministering spirits sent to help us. Peter met an angel who delivered him from prison and delivered him out of the hands of Herod. This is so encouraging to me. 
I could read this every day and my heart would smile because I need angels watching over me. I think in my life of 60 years, I could tell you probably three or four times that I know an angel intervened in my life. I think that those times are incredible. I think they should be written down. I think they should be shared with your children and your children's children and anybody else who will listen. I uh, remember a time, this was back in 1977. We lived in Orange County, California, and Vic was driving home in a city named Irvine, California. And he was on the main road there, and he was driving at 55 miles an hour, 45, 50 miles an hour. And a lady was coming this way, and she made an illegal left turn in front of Vic. He was driving in a a little yellow Love. This takes you back, a Love pickup, uh, Chevy Love. And he knew if he hit her, they would both die. So he had the sense to swerve over to the side. But what he didn't see was a solid steel light pole right there, and he wrapped the truck around it, and he went into the windshield. And blood started spurting from his head. I was five and a half months pregnant at the time I was working. And Vic's dad called me, and he said, "Um, "Hun, I'm going to come to get you. And I said, why, Dad? And he said, well, Vic's had a little accident, and I'm going to come and get you. And I said, Dad, is he okay? And he said, well, he he broke his nose. And um, I said, is that all? And he said, oh, I'm coming to get you. So I knew that this wasn't good. So after everything happened and I got to the hospital, they wouldn't let me see him because I was pregnant. And um, the doctor actually came out and showed me. He said, I want to show you pictures first. I don't need you going into labor. I need you to be safe. So I said, I don't really want to see the pictures. He said, I need you to see the pictures. And Vic's face was so swollen, I couldn't see his future, his features. I mean, it was really bad. He had a gash all the way up his head that they had stitched. There was blood everywhere. So when we got a chance to talk, Vic said, did you find the man that put the compress on my head? And the police report, there was no man that put any compress on Vic's head. There was nobody that touched him or intervened. Vic said, Susan, there was a man putting a comp... It makes me cry to think of this. There was a man putting a compress on my head. They found the rag in the truck. No man. Had it not been for that being, Vic probably wouldn't have lived. He never lost consciousness. And I believe with all my heart, and so does Vic, if he were standing here today, he would tell you that was an angel sent by God to take care of him. I need my angels. I thank God for them. Vic needed that angel that day. Peter needed this angel. And when an angel comes and does something like that for you, it's just the hand of God working in your life. And that's what was happening here. This really encourages me. Now, you may ask, why didn't God send an angel for John or any of the others that were beheaded or killed? I don't know. That's just the sovereignty of God. And as we were talking in leaders meeting, I remember a few weeks ago, Gary shared on the sovereignty of God. And, you know, we don't have to have all the answers. Why does God heal one and not another? I don't know. But something that Gary said, um, I think it was last Sunday, you know, the ultimate healing is being in heaven with Jesus. 
we think the healing is, oh, to fix this cut or to, to take away this tumor or to take out this gallbladder or whatever. The ultimate healing is to be with my Heavenly Father in Jesus. And we must remember that God's sovereignty is just a, a wonderful thing and that we won't understand it here on earth. So don't try. Don't try. Don't try to figure out a God that is so much bigger and so much higher than we are. You'll never do it. You'll just blow fuses in your brain trying. He is sovereign. So we see Peter knocking at the door in verse 16. He's still knocking. And here the believers are are commendably praying, but with how much faith? And we talked about this in leaders meeting too. It's really cool because we have this great faith to pray, but are we believing in the answer? The answer is standing at the door. And you know, we do waver from time to time, don't we? We're not always just that strong in our faith. And that's what's so neat when we read about these great people in the Word of God, in the Bible. They struggled with the same thing we struggled with. But don't let that keep you from praying. Pray, pray, pray. Believe, believe, believe. You know, as I stand here, you know, 35 years older than when I got saved... I pray that my faith has increased, and that's what we want. We want that growth. You know, this isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a marathon, and we grow day by day, minute by minute sometimes. And I pray that today my faith is greater than my faith was when I was 24, 25, 26. And it does grow because you see God work. So Peter is knocking at the door. If we pray for things that are easy, it is easy to trust God to do it. If we pray for the impossible, we think, how will this ever happen? But we need to remember that our God is the God of the impossible. With God, all things are possible. Do you know there's nothing too hard for God that you're praying about? There's nothing too hard for God. But in spite of our faith or the lack of it, God works. Peter was delivered from the hand of Herod, and he comes to tell them everything. And then he leaves, and we don't see Peter again until chapter 15. Let's look at verse 18. In the morning there was no, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. There was a law, there was a Roman law, that if you guarded a prisoner and that prisoner got, um, was, got out, escaped, you died. Scary, huh? Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sid- I don't know how to say it, Sidon, they now joined together and sought an audience with him. There was a, if you go back in history, and there's not a lot written in history, even in secular history, about what the problem may have been here, but there are some thoughts that it had to do with um, trading. This was a seaport, and it might have been about trading and what they were getting and what they were giving. But now they joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace. 
because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. Remember, he was a people pleaser. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued and spread and flourished. Verse 25, when Barnabas and Saul had finished finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking them with John, also called Mark, which will lead us into the next chapter next week. So Herod putting the guards to death proves that he was planning on putting Peter to death. Like I said, the law said if a prisoner escaped, the guards were to die. And we don't, like I said, we don't know for sure what the problem was between Herod and these cities. But Herod was again here trying to please people. He had put on a festival of sorts, um, like a circus atmosphere. And he was dressed in all these royal robes and all this glitz and this glamour. And the people started praising him. And can you just see him getting puffed up and... He took the glory, and what happened? He died. Write in your Bible or write in your notes, beware, never take God's glory. Never take God's glory. It belongs to God. It's his and his alone. I remember um, back in 1984, I think it was, the first time I taught for... Um, Pastor Chuck's wife, Kay, in our women's Bible study, I was driving there that morning, and there were 1,200 women in that Bible study, and um, I remember I was going to teach for the first time, and, and I kept thinking to myself, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? Why are you doing this? I mean, I went there with fear and trembling and a humility and just such dumbfoundedness that she would ask me to share with her women. And um, I, I was up there, and I was sharing, and at Calvary Costa Mesa, there's the big sanctuary, and then, you know, everything's outside because it's California. And then there's a big, beautiful co- courtyard, and it's all Spanish-style architecture, and this big, beautiful courtyard. And Vic was, unbeknownst to me, Vic was standing in the courtyard listening to me. And as was, I was getting near the end, um, two um, older women at Calvary at the time came out who knew Vic, and they said to Vic, we never knew your wife was such a gifted speaker. How come you never told us that? And Vic goes, she's not. That was God. (laughs) And rightfully so. She's not. That was God. And that is my prayer. Every time I share with somebody one-on-one or I share in a group setting, God, let it be you. Don't let them see Susan. Let them see you. For there is nothing good in me but Jesus Christ. Amen? And we need to remember that. Never, ever, ever take the glory. Ever. Verse 23, um, Herod thought that he was powerful enough to put James to death and get away with it. But now God saw fit to punish him touching him, and for, for touching the church. Jesus told his disciples, and I love this. He said that he would build the church... And the gates of hell, hell shall not prevail against it. Our God will build the church, and the gates 
of hell will not prevail against it. That's Matthew 16, 18. So you might say, well, then why do I need to pray for the church? Because God tells us to. Because God tells us to. And we need you to pray for the church. And we need you to pray for the leaders. And we need you to pray for one another. My greatest joy in all the years that I've been involved in women's ministry, whether it was California, Idaho, or here, is to see women that catch the joy of sharing Jesus with one another and growing in your knowledge and your relationship of who he is in their life and your life. I can, I can tell you that one of the greatest joys of my life has been to see my daughter grow up and to be a mother now and to be someone who has really been in the Word all her life. She went to Calvary Chapel um, School, Maranatha Christian Academy. They had Bible verses every week. They had uh, line upon line, which is a precept study that they did in school. Um, but to see her knowledge of God grow and for her to, and I to have conversations in the Word of God makes my heart leap in my chest. The other night, she and I had, we had gone to the gym during the day on this one of those cold days. We actually swam. It was so warm in the gym, and we saunaed, and we got our blood moving, and we got our body temperature rising. We came home, and she was working on her study, and she stayed and had dinner with Vic and I, and we were talking about this chapter, and we were talking about heaven, and we were talking about different things, and I thought, how wonderful it is to sit with your friends and your family and talk about the things of God. And I encourage you to do that. You know, there's so many ridiculous, nonsensical things that we talk about. Amen? But how great and glorious it is to talk about the Word of God. So in this chapter, we saw great things. We saw intercessory prayer. We saw the ministry of angels. And we saw a warning to never take God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, for your, your word, the power of your word, the work of your word, and just what it does in our own lives. I thank you for these women who have come out here this morning on this frigid morning to, to study your word and to fellowship. Bless these groups. Bless these women. And Lord, I want to um, also pray for David that you would continue to heal him. I also want to lift up Terry's sister Tracy to you, Lord, as she is in the ICU unit with pneumonia. I pray that you would touch this young woman. First and foremost, I pray that you would reveal to her that you love her, Lord. Please help her to understand that you love her. Whatever it is in her life that blocks that, Father, please take it away and help her to understand that you love her. I pray that you would heal her of the pneumonia and the flu that she has. I pray you give wisdom to the doctors. Be with Betty as Walt as they are in Virginia Beach with her. And restore her to health. But more than anything, Lord, restore her spirit to you. I, I ask that you would continue to be with Pastor Gary and Terry and give them these last few days a great time where they are and just bless them together. May they laugh. May they smile. May they just take time for each other. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.